Well, let's start uh, with prayer before we start this, shall we? Lord, we are grateful to gather together this morning. Uh, we pray for those who, who aren't here for whatever reason, uh, traveling or whatever they're doing. Lord, we pray for, for safety for them. Uh, we know there, are, there is uh, more sickness going around. We pray for all of those who have whatever it is that might be going around now. Uh, Lord, we pray for, uh, for healing for all of those, uh, for safety, for, for people who are being uh, infected. Um, we don't know where this is going or where, how this is going to end, but Lord, you do, and, and we can take some comfort in that. Um, we thank you for the chance that we have to gather here this morning to listen to uh, the, the word of God uh, spoken through the Spirit to the hearts and minds of those who wrote it down, and what a remarkable letter this is that we've been going through, this letter to the church in Philippi. We thank you for all that it contains, and I pray that as we close it out this morning, Lord, that we would hear these final words of wisdom, and we would find uh, much application here for us. I, I think there's a lot here. So we thank you for allowing us the time to go through this. We thank you for the underlying message of, of joy and gratitude and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so this is kind of a, a bittersweet kind of moment, coming to the end of the book. You know, I wouldn't have said that going into this that Philippians is one of my favorite books. And now I'd say it's kind of up there uh, near the top of the list. Um, for a variety of reasons. For one, it has been challenging on every level, on many levels. From the very early parts of the letter, Paul calls on believers to live out our faith consistently. Live like you mean it. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I mean, straight away, he calls out every believer. Think about this. How do other people see you? I mean, if people are watching, if they're paying attention to how you live your life, would they observe someone who is consistently trying to live out their faith? Are we working out our salvation with fear and trembling? Is, is living a God-honoring life even on our to-do list, on a regular basis. Or just the occasional check-in to see how we're doing. So then Christianity is really just kind of lip service. It's kind of, kind of Christianity light, Jesus as an accessory. I mean, Paul calls us to get beyond that. Live as though we really mean it. And then he goes on to tell us if we're doing that, we should be expecting some opposition. But we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be frightened by anything from our opponents. He tells us that we're likely going to suffer for our faith. I mean, he's under house arrest as he writes this, so Paul knows from whence he speaketh about suffering for the cause of Christ. But he says his imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel. So he seems to suggest that our perseverance through suffering will also advance the gospel if we stand firm if we live it out and then he pushes the concept to its furthest conclusion and says even if suffering for the cause of christ leads to my death for me to live as christ to die is gain so paul gives us this very unusual win-win scenario even if one way to win is dying if I win, I get to live. If I live, I get to live for Christ. If I die, I've lived for Christ. It's, it's a win-win. This, this gospel is weird. It's counter-cultural. It's counter-intuitive, at least from an earthly perspective, which is why Paul also repeatedly reminds us to keep a heavenly perspective in this life. We are citizens of the earth here and now, but this life will come to an end. 
And as a result of our salvation, which comes through our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are also citizens of heaven now and forever. And that will not end. And so we're to live like citizens of heaven. Following the example of Christ himself. And then he tells us that following the example of Christ means we have to love each other. It means we're to have the same mind. It means we're, we're, we're to strive to be in full accord with one another. We're not selfish. We're practicing humility. We do things without grumbling or disputing. Paul's annoying on these points. In short, he says you've got to live like Christ. Strive towards unity with your fellow believers. This is your family. These are the people you'll be spending eternity with. Get used to them. This is a challenging little letter. And as we well know, none of this advice that Paul lays out, none of it is what we would call easy. Because our natural tendency might be to stress out a little over life, the universe, everything. So Paul wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And when you do that, he says, as you get better at doing that, you'll start to realize that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is easily one of the most powerful, most faith-affirming, most try-me-and-see, God-proving, most ignored verses in the Bible. I mean, I'm just being honest, right? More often than not, what Paul describes here as the cure for anxiety for us is mostly a last resort. We'd rather wrestle with the issue first. We need to think through all the possible scenarios. We need to worry about it just a little bit so we can feel like we're involved in the process. After we lose sleep for a period of time, eventually we realize we don't have a clue how to solve this. And then we turn it over in prayer. And then we realize we can turn it over to the Lord. We can focus on what is true and what is pure, and we can try to be humble. And, and, and humility at this point ought not be difficult for us because we just realize we don't have all the answers. We have very few answers. Humility ought to come easily. It doesn't. But we, we, we learn to think about these positive things, these higher things. We practice these things, and Paul says, then the peace of God will be with us. So after writing what has been this relatively brief but altogether remarkable letter, Paul starts to now close it down here towards the end. And the closing comments get a little more personal again. This is a very personal letter that Paul has written. He says in, in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So as I read through this several times, many times, I, I found the first half kind of interesting. This probably highlights my own particular gift of sarcasm, but it almost sounds as though, you could almost read it as though Paul is saying, I rejoice in the Lord that at long last, finally, you're, you're finally concerned about me again. Finally, you've started supporting me again. I'm, I'm grateful that it's finally occurred to you to support me. But that's not the point. And that's not the emphasis. The emphasis Paul is making here is on the beginning of the sentence where he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And that's been one of the key themes of this letter, joy. 
Paul's not accusing the Philippians of having abandoned him over the years. Rather, he is expressing gratitude and joy that they've, they've heard about his present circumstance. He, he's in jail. He's under house arrest. He's having to pay for this himself. And they've taken up a collection. They've sent him money to help out. And he admits, you've always been concerned for me, but there just wasn't a real need. There wasn't a way that you could help, really, until now. And for that, I'm grateful. I rejoice. That's the sense in which this is written. So when they heard that Paul had been arrested, they gathered up some money, they gave it to Epaphroditus to, to deliver it to Paul in Rome. And, and Epaphroditus was sent to, to minister, to encourage Paul, to provide this financial support. You heard I had a need, Paul said, and you responded, I'm grateful. And he goes on to clarify it just a little more. He said, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know, how to be, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Anybody heard that verse before? Yeah. This has always been one of the more uh, amazing, impressive, humbling sections of Scripture to me. And chances are we've all heard this this verse, or at least part of these verses before, repeatedly. We may have had a bumper sticker at one point that had part of this on there. We may even have part of these verses memorized. And yet I wonder, at least for me, if I can truly comprehend the depth of what Paul is saying here. If we can even come close to understanding Paul's mental and spiritual state as he writes this. I wonder if I can even imagine myself ever making these claims at some point. I've learned to be content in every circumstance. I mean, we tend to camp on the I can do all things part, and we overlook the part that just came before. Paul says, even though he's under arrest, even though he's chained to a guard most of his days, and he gets the privilege of paying for all that himself, he realizes he could be tried and sentenced. He could be uh, sentenced to death. He, he could be sentenced to imprisonment. Any day now, his situation is, is precarious at best and dire at worst. And Paul says, I'm not complaining, mind you. I've got no real needs. So clearly his definition of need is different than my definition of need. And there seems to be only one real feasible explanation for Paul's attitude here, and that is, he practices what he preaches. So when Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, Paul doesn't seem to be anxious about his situation. When he says, be grateful for what you have, pray with gratitude, think on higher things like truth, justice, purity and humility. Be more like Christ in your heart, soul, and mind. And then, and then, after you do those things, you'll experience the peace of God, and that peace will surpass all understanding. That seems to be where Paul is. That seems to be where Paul lives. It's hard for us to wrap our heads around. You know, we talked about the whole do not be anxious idea and how it's something that just doesn't come naturally to us. In fact, quite the opposite, actually. Our first reaction is to worry and be anxious. So learning not to be anxious is something that we have to aspire to. It's, it's something that we have to work towards. It is a, an acquired skill. 
which Paul confirms here when he says, I have learned. In whatever situation, to be content. I had to learn it. So this is not a spiritual gift that was transferred to Paul. It's not a spiritual gift that can be transferred to us. It is something we work for. There is no magical contentment download from the cloud. And if we just had the passcode, we could get it. It's something that we must learn through trial and error, through good times and bad times, in plenty and in hunger. And Paul wrote, I've learned to be content in every situation. And remember, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul mentions some of his lessons in this process. He, he mentions some trials he's experienced to help him get to this point. He wrote, I've been whipped with 40 lashes, minus one, so 39. 39 lashes. I, I was beaten with rods three times. I was stoned with actual real rocks. Shipwrecked three times, adrift at sea one full day. I've dealt with floods and robbers. At times I was weary and tired. I lacked food, I lacked water, I was cold, I was nearly naked. That's a ridiculous resume for a guy who has no needs. And this letter to the church in Corinth was probably written 10 or 11 years before he died, so he got to add to this resume. After this, he was likely uh, imprisoned another couple of times, probably had another shipwreck, was bitten by a snake. And this is Paul's resume, the testament to his faithfulness to the gospel, which, as it turns out, is also his resume for contentment. And don't get me wrong, he says, I've got no complaints. I got no real needs. I've learned through every situation, good and bad, through every physical, mental, and spiritual test. I've learned. I, I've seen the faithfulness of God. I've learned to trust Him more. I've learned to be content. Because I know I, I've been brought low. I know how to abound. And that word bound is the root for abundance. He, he's had a lot of he's had a lot of stuff. He, he's had success. So he says, I've had I've had a lot. And I've had very little. I know what it's like. In every circumstance, and Paul's had a lot of circumstances, in every circumstance, he says, I've learned the secret. The secret of facing plenty and hunger. The secret of abundance and need. I have learned the secret. He says that twice. I have learned. I have learned the secret. Now, it's interesting that word secret, that's the word that Paul chooses to use here. It's not the sense in which we use the word secret, as in shh. Tell anybody. Shh. The meaning of this word is something more like to initiate into the mysteries. This would have been a, a, a word that these first hearers would have associated with many of the cults that were popular in the area that day. People were initiated into these secret cultic practices. So they would have understood that, that Paul's, Paul is leading them into this understanding. It also can have the, the, uh, the, the meaning of to instruct. So Paul's teaching them here about this secret. He's sharing this secret to the church in Philippi, and now every church thereafter to follow. He's initiating the faithful into this mystery, into the secret, and what is it? It's the secret of contentment. 
I have learned, and now I'm teaching you. I'm initiating you to find contentment in good and bad, in highs and lows, in Sunday as well as Wednesday or Friday. You want to live in peace with God? You want to live in God's peace? Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with gratitude, take your request to the Lord. Learn to trust more. Grow in your faith. Walk in a manner that suggests that you believe that God is God, that he's involved, he's concerned, he's faithful, he's present, he's intervening. Do these things and you'll find peace. You'll find contentment. And Paul spells that out pretty clearly here, I think, which is, again, interesting if we think about the word secret in terms of how we tend to think of it, as in the, shh, don't tell anybody. Because it is kind of a secret in the sense that most people don't read the Bible. And so they won't find this. And I might even stretch it and say most people that do read the Bible and do read this won't apply it. So it's literally the worst kept secret ever and still one of the best kept secrets ever. Even though the potential life-changing impact is huge. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. I've learned the secret of dealing with or, or accepting both abundance and greed. And because I know this secret, because I've applied this secret, because I've applied the precepts of not being anxious, not spending all my time and energy worrying over every little thing, what I'm going to eat, what I'm going to wear, where I'm going to live, what if I die? Because I don't worry about those things, but instead I have an abundant faith and a faithful God, because I rely on an almighty sovereign God in all situations, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That part we know. That part we like to quote. That part we really, really hope is true. But just repeating it won't make it true. Not without doing the work that is required. Not without doing those things that came before it. As we reject anxiety, as we grow in faith, as we become more obedient, we begin to live closer to God's peace. We begin to live in God's peace for our lives. And then we begin to realize that this phrase, I can do all things, is really even bigger and more expansive than we thought. I mean, it is, I can do all things, but it also means I can deal with so many more things than I could before. I can survive all these things. I can trust the Lord in all things. I can live without fear of man. I can live without fear of the world. I can lose every material possession that I own and not stress out about it because I know I'll never lose the place that Jesus has gone ahead to prepare for me. So suffering and loss and shipwrecks and beatings, imprisonments, those are temporal, those are fleeting. Those are just... You know, inconveniences. But God's love and provision is never ending. Commentator J.B. Phillips paraphrased it this way. I am ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives within me. The Living Bible says I can do everything God asks me to with the help of Christ who gives me strength. So when we read, 
I can do all things through Christ, we should understand that it is so much bigger than the words convey. It is so much more than I can do all things. What that means is the power of God is greater than my circumstance. So there's no trial that's too difficult. There's no obstacle that's too high. There's no temptation that is too strong. There's no opposition too powerful. There's no persecution too threatening to cause me to worry and lose faith. If we put our faith in Christ, if we follow him in obedience, and that can't be left out of the the equation, then joy and peace will follow. Paul seemed to have a pretty firm grasp on this secret. He understood it. He lived it. Which is why he could write and mean for, to me, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Whether it's this life or the next, good times, hard times, I can be content. But I think there's another element to Paul's extraordinary faith and his contentedness here. And I think that's the fact that Paul was Saul. And that fact never escaped him. He never forgot who he had been. It was forgiven. It wasn't held against him. But he always knew that Saul was an avid and ardent persecutor of the church. He hated those Christian apostate weirdos who were following this Jesus character. He was out to punish them. For a period in Saul's life, he was anti-Christ. But Christ chose to save Saul. To forgive his hatred, to forgive his animosity, to, to forgive his actions that directly led to the suffering and death of other Christ followers. And I think Paul never lost sight of that. He didn't let it get him down. He didn't allow Satan to use it as a weapon against him. But it motivated him towards righteousness. He admitted in First Timothy, I am chief among sinners. Not, I was chief among sinners, but I am chief among sinners. I still have the capacity for great sin. I mean, if anybody else has sinned against God, I've done it more, he said. And yet God's love still enveloped Paul. So when Paul, over the course of his life and career, when he began to weigh what he rightly deserved against what God had given him, from the, from the gracious hand of a loving God, Paul was content with whatever God saw fit to provide. He realized he deserved nothing, nothing good anyway. After doing all that he had done against God, to now be chosen and accepted to be on Team Jesus? I mean, Paul was happy with that. Anything more is just gravy. And while our resume might not be as anti-Christ as Saul's was, there's plenty of application here for each of us. We deserve nothing but punishment and death for our sins against a righteous and holy God. But God made a way. Through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, we've been offered a way to find redemption. We've been offered a way to receive grace and mercy by putting our faith in Jesus and asking for forgiveness committing to follow him the rest of our days.
and a right understanding of that changes everything. Like it did for Paul. If he was blessed with abundance, Paul said, God is good. If he was blessed with extreme need, Paul said, God is still good, and what an honor for me to suffer for the cause of Christ. That's amazing. Now, I like to think that Paul probably did not start with that attitude. He had, he had moments, but he got there. He thought about what he deserved versus what he received. He thought about how sinful he was compared to how righteous God is, which drove him to obey the Lord more faithfully. And Paul learned to be content with whatever the Lord decided about Paul's life, even if that was death. Now, again, I think many of us have a hard time getting our heads around that. We, un- we understand our sinful disposition. We understand God's righteousness and grace, his mercy, but we still struggle with that complete faith and trust part. And so we still struggle with contentedness. We struggle with being content in every situation. And that's where the learning process comes in. We have to be in it for the long haul. We have to trust that God's plan is best for us always. Whether it looks good or bad from our perspective, we have to trust the Lord. I think we would all like to be able to say, I've learned to be content in all things. I think we understand the power and freedom that would come from that. Probably fewer of us would sign up for contentedness if we were given the course syllabus ahead of time. The successful student will learn to be content in all things. Coursework may include, but not be limited to, weeks or months of imprisonment, periodic beatings, banned from both Facebook and Twitter, (gasps) exposed to name-calling, like racist or homophobe or whatever else we're called these days, losing friends, making enemies, experience wealth and abundance, experience extreme poverty and need. And the student will be expected to pay for this course themselves, as well as all related activities, out of their own pockets, and do it cheerfully. This class would be a tough sell. I have to believe that since Paul was human, he had moments of second guessing, but he persevered. He learned. He remained faithful to his calling. He walked worthy of the call that had been placed on his life. And he learned to be content in all things. And although content, although he says he doesn't have any needs, he he, he was still able to appreciate when he got help, when he got outside assistance. I'm sure Paul was thrilled to see Epaphroditus show up. I mean, he he brought him money uh, to help pay for his his bills from being in prison. Um, But Epaphroditus came to help, to minister, to encourage And Paul may not have needed the help, but I'm sure the visit was uplifting and affirming. And it was extra special to Paul that it came from this church. This church that he helped plant 10 or so years ago. It was special to him that he had been remembered. So he goes on, he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. 
Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So after making it clear that Paul has no real needs, he still is able to express gratitude for the support he receives from the church in Philippi. He says, it was kind of you to share in my trouble, which could have been plural. He had troubles. It wasn't just a trouble. This gives you some, some insight into Paul's perspective on this. Yeah, I had a little issue. I almost died in the hospital, but it was not a big deal. It was not a big deal. Uh, it's kind of you to share in my trouble. And then he shows he, he, that he remembers all of their support over the years. Uh, in fact, the church in Philippi has been a consistent supporter of Paul's ministry from the, from the very beginning. He, he remembers that they alone supported him through some difficult years. He calls them his ministry partners. And they didn't just provide support for him when he was with them in Philippi. They supported Paul when he was sharing the gospel in other cities to other people. They supported him even when they got no direct benefit from him or his teaching. So they were, in fact, supporting the kingdom at large. It wasn't just Paul. They were supporting the work of the gospel. And Paul reminds him of that. He, he acknowledges what that means. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So in, in essence, Paul's saying your, your gift, your financial support, your sacrifice of money for the sake of others was an investment in the gospel. It was an investment in in the kingdom of God. And more importantly, it was pleasing to the Lord. And that pays eternal dividends. That's a good investment. That'll come back for years, forever. Those are all important things for us to consider in how we deal with our own personal finances. What are we investing in? What kind of returns are we looking for? Do we spend time, maybe too much time, focused on our returns here, not enough time focused on our eternal returns? And that's why, as a church, we always include mission support as part of our annual budget. We're supporting the kingdom. And Paul says, because of you, I'm well supplied. I've received the gifts you sent with Epaphroditus. And that gift, we don't know what it was, big or small. We have no idea. It was a gift for the advancement of the gospel. And he says it was like a fragrant offering. It was an acceptable offering. It was pleasing to God. Another obvious reference to the Old Testament, that the priestly act of animal sacrifice. So even though Epaphroditus likely brought cash, uh, the, the, the connection is made to the Old Testament animal sacrifice. Paul understands that what they've made here is a spiritual sacrifice. It just happened to be in the form of money. This is really a spiritual sacrifice on their part. So this continues the, the theme from the Old Testament animal sacrifice. And, and we know from other verses in the New Testament that there are other kinds of spiritual sacrifices made as well. Romans 12 talks about our bodies being living sacrifices, living spiritual sacrifices. Hebrews 13 says we are to offer the praise of our lips as sacrifice. It says our good works are sacrifice to the Lord. So in verse 18, Paul says, My needs have been met because of your sacrifice, your investment in the gospel. And then in verse 19, he says, And so your needs will be met because of your investment in the gospel. My God will supply every need of yours 
according to his riches and glory. Now, if you read that right, it kind of sounds like a promise. My God will. Not might. Perhaps. If he's awake. Thursdays are his day off. Don't check on Thursday. My God will supply. It is a promise, but it needs to be rightly understood. We read, my God will supply every need, but somehow in our hearing or sometimes in our thinking, it comes out, my God will supply every greed. It's a whole different thing. Too many prosperity gospel preachers teach this as well. That God owes us. He's, he's obligated to give us. He's promised to give us whatever we ask or demand. That's not what Paul has written here. Paul is assuming that at this point in the letter that the Philippians in the, in the church in Philippi, they have now the right belief that leads to right living. The Christians here are striving to be faithful followers of Christ. They're not captive to anxiety, or at least they're becoming less captive to anxiety. They're not worrying so much about life. They're, they're doctrinally sound. They're eternity-gazing. They're sacrificial in their living and their giving. They're trying to live according to their calling. And since they're striving to live in accord with God's will, God will reward their obedience, and he will meet every need. That's the promise. There's all that other stuff that comes first. And it was interesting, as I was going through this this week, it kind of reminded me of a similar theme we've heard from another book. I don't know if you guys remember this. We did Genesis uh, couple years back. And here are some of the big themes. God rewards faith, he keeps his promises, and he works in ways and times we don't understand. Isn't that kind of the argument Paul's making here? God's going to reward your faith. He will keep his promises. And if Paul's life is any indication, God works in ways and times we don't understand. He will supply the needs of the faithful. He's promised it. It will be done. And sometimes he works on us through obedience and need, through hunger and plenty, but he'll always do what he promised. He'll always reward faith. And we can find contentment in that. We can find contentment in the fact that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He does not change. Missionary Hudson Taylor once wrote that when God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will not lack for God's supply. This is a right understanding of this verse. God is able and willing to reward our actions when we are obedient and we seek to glorify him. This ought to refute the prosperity gospel message that God's just a big old ATM waiting to pay out to whoever asks or demands, says the magic words. Or that God is obligated to give us everything that we ask for. That is a lie. It is not what Scripture teaches. Context matters. And and not to put too fine a point on it, but Paul adds, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. So our chief aim is, or our chief aim ought to be, what's going to bring God the most glory? What in our life, what in our lifestyle, what in how we live, how we conduct ourselves, how is our behavior going to bring God glory? So when our will aligns with God's will, when we obediently play our 
role, give it, play the assigned role that God's given us, and whether it's in wealth or poverty, whether we're brought high or low, whether we're in prison or, or out of prison, when we learn to be content, then God will bless us and will supply our needs. And somehow in this exchange, even though we benefit from God's blessing on us, somehow he's ultimately glorified in that process. That's a pretty remarkable plan. That's a win-win. Paul then closes out this letter with one more little personal flourish. The final few verses, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Again, this shows the close connection that Paul has with this church in Philippi. You know, this is kind of, um, in our more laid-back vernacular, perhaps, this is Paul saying, hey, tell everybody I said hey. I miss you guys. Tell them I said hey. The brothers here with me, my co-workers for the gospel, they send their love. They say hey. All your fellow believers, most of whom you don't know and probably will never meet, but they're all part of God's extended family here. They all send their best. They're praying for you. Especially those of Caesar's household, he says. Now, I think this was meant as an encouragement to the Philippians. The Philippi was under Roman rule, and they were likely none too happy about that. And Paul has already told them that his imprisonment in Rome has served to advance the gospel. So this is a reminder to them you have Roman brothers and sisters in Christ. Forget about the leadership. You've got brothers and sisters in Christ who are Roman citizens. So the kingdom is expanding, in part because of your support. Church, he says, the church is bigger than politics, it's bigger than boundaries, it's bigger than kings. Presidents and parties. We are to be united in Christ. And then he closes out that thought with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I think that was kind of, that's kind of an odd phrase. At least it struck me as kind of odd. Be with your spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And I, th- I think Paul's point here is it's all grace. It's all grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of life, every breath we take, every waking moment is God's grace towards us. He opened this letter with grace to you and peace from God. And this is how he closes it. The grace of Christ be with your spirit. And that almost seems kind of the the exclamation point on what Paul has laid out here. Pursue the peace of God that comes through absolute faith. Reject anxiety. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize of the upward call of Christ. And find the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Therein lies joy. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so, so grateful for the words that have been left for us here, for the impact that this has made on, 
on the lives of individual Christians, on the, 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 the role, the expansion of the church, the role and the expansion of the kingdom throughout history. Lord, so many cultures, so many churches, so many believers have faced extraordinary trial and adversity and persecution, and the church perseveres. The gates of hell will not stand against it. Lord, there is power in these words. And I pray that, that we continue to learn. We continue to learn how to apply what we hear. We, we continue to learn how to reject anxiety. We continue to learn how to, how to bring everything to the Lord in prayer with, with gratitude. And we pray that we begin to realize what it really means to live in the peace of God. And that that light would shine out from us into our families, into our communities, into our workplace. And Lord, that people would know that we are trying to live up to our call. We're trying to be worthy to the call of Christ in our life. We pray for strength. We pray for fortitude. We pray for stubbornness to work through days where we just don't feel like praying or we just don't feel like God is listening. Lord, may we we be reminded that you are always listening. You are always attentive. You have always been and you will always be. And we thank you for the love and the grace that you've given to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.